Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Father, we are so grateful for an opportunity to examine this, uh, this thing you've called marriage, this, uh, this tremendous tool that you have given each of us in order to understand just the relationship that you have with the church. And we ask now this morning that you would take your truth Uh, burn it into our hearts that it not only gives us a greater understanding of who you are, but your uh, plan for us in this uh, this incredible journey that you've given to us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Eric uh, is sick, so I was supposed to give this message next week. So I, I got a chance to do a week's worth of study in three days. I'm, I'm a big fan of the three-point sermon. I just love those. I just like that style. It's easy, but it's not going to be that way today because I, I didn't have that time to organize it. So we're just going to plow through this. Um, Eric knows full well the history of, of my wife and I and actually our whole family. Uh, the recent history has been uh, pretty eventful considering the first 15 years, 20 years of our marriage. But um, I want to get a chance to share some of what that is with you, the, the kind of the testimony of what God has done in and through our marriage and in our family. And, and uh, basically, he asked me to come up here and talk and give you a chance to get up all in our business, basically. I'm hoping there's some, some of you here that can be helped by, by what went on. And it's also proof it's also proof that God does do things in marriages that, uh, that may seem like yours might not be a place where it can be repaired if you're in a place like that. He can. He can absolutely repair them. We're going to talk about marriage today, but we're also going to talk about theology. Now, it may seem like two entirely different subjects to you, but that's actually perfect because oftentimes... Not good theology impacts everything, including your marriage. And the thing is, is uh, because, because of that, sometimes that can be the actual root of your struggle. The most profound, the most significant, the most mind-altering sentence ever written was, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's so staggering that if you don't grasp the weight of that one sentence, you will never, ever make sense of life correctly. You'll always be at odds. You'll always find tension in this world you live in if you reject that very first statement. And I love the fact that the statement is just an affirmation. It's just, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is a foregone fact We're going to build the rest of this story based on that already established conclusion. Now, the thing about that phrase, in the beginning, God created, is is actually properly written. It's in beginning, God created. In beginning sounds different than a marker in time. It's not telling you that when he did it. He's saying in beginning, in other words, in starting, 
God created. See, the word beginning is a marker in time. It's not a marker in time. It's actually, it's actually the start of a project. When you begin something, when you have a project, you have a start. When God says, in the, when, he, when the word says in the beginning or in beginning, God starts, that means that there's going to be a sequential series of events that are going to come to a conclusion. God started something in the beginning. Why did he create anything? See, if we have this, under, this misunderstanding that he, that the creation account gives us an insight of, of why God did this. That means that everything that we see, everything that we come to understand, everything we don't know can be traced back to God. And that's always a good place to have some foundation. It can all be traced back to God. Your marriage can be traced back to God. Everything. Because if it starts with him, everything that emanates from that will come back to me. He's both the start and he's the starter. I want to really establish that, how important that is. So, the creation account gives us an insight into what kind of God we have. In other words, why did he create anything? We know that God is complete. He lacks nothing. There isn't anything that he created in order to satisfy something that was missing in him. He was complete and sufficient. And the, the, the word, actually, the, the philosophical term, he was actual in other words, he had no potential to be anything other than perfect. No potential to be anything other than complete. He didn't create to satisfy something that was missing in him. So why did he create? Well, actually, we get some help right from the text. You guys know it. At the end of each day of creation, God looked at all the work that he did, and he called it good. After each day, God assessed his work and called it good, and he could have used any number of words. He could have used brilliant. He could have used satisfying. He could have used beautiful. He could have used great. He didn't use that, that, a word that implied any sense of pride in what he did. Uh, he didn't use a word that was a description of the quality. After all, I mean, good really is eclipsed by better and best. I mean, if he, were to, was, if he was assessing the quality, he said, this is perfect. But he said it was good. Well, here the word good, it has a moral aspect to it. When we sing, you are good, you are good, we're not talking about his quality. We're talking about a moral attribute of God. When we say God is good, we're speaking of his goodness, a moral righteousness. He looked upon his creation and saw that it was a good thing. It was a good place to serve a good purpose. Because God is good, God had wanted to express his goodness in his creation. He created the world to both display and dispense goodness. Romans 1.19.20 says, For what we can know about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. 
Remember that phrase in the beginning, the start of a plan. Plans have a purpose or a goal. All of this work was done in preparation for God's plan to provide all that was needed for what was to happen next. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image. God did not design the universe for himself. He designed it for us. He designed it for you. Isaiah 45 says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens and the earth, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. This is God's expression of his love for us, that that he would prepare a place so specifically designed to not only sustain us, but to do it with such beauty. I mean, look at nature. It's awesome. It's awesome in its beauty, and it's for us. Then God, in Genesis 2.18, he says something that at first glance may, may not seem like that unusual, but when you take a closer look at it, the implication is absolutely staggering. Genesis 2.18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. This is the first time in all of creation count that something is not good. In a perfect environment, think about this. This is Adam living in paradise with a one-to-one exclusive relationship with his very own creator that that creator formed him with his own hands. There is no human being on earth that has ever had that kind of relationship with God. And God saw him as alone. That's staggering. Think about it. That God himself said Adam was alone. And for Adam, that was not good. This is the God we have. That God himself is the one who determined that there was an aspect of, God, of Adam's life that God was not intended to satisfy. Our complete joy is God's desire, and God saw it to it that he would solve this problem for Adam. This is the kind of God we have, one who gives us good things for our joy, our pleasure, our fulfillment. This is simply to let us know that God cares for us. By providing us with every good thing, he says to us, I value you and your life. So God created Eve. This was good. It was good for Adam. And it was for Adam's good. It changes things, doesn't it? Remember Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. Even atheists have their version of it. You know, well, everything happens for a reason. You know exactly what someone means when they say, this is for your own good. This is spin for this will not be fun. You know this kind of good is not the good kind of good. It's the bad kind of good. 
In fact, sometimes it doesn't even seem like good when you finally realize what that good was. I mean, you don't always lose a job just because God has a better job for you. Sometimes God wants you to make you experience what it's like to be completely dependent upon him. To trust him instead of your clever business skills. I'll never forget the words of a friend of mine when I bought my first home and stamped it with the proverbial, God blessed us with a new house. It wasn't two seconds before he said, maybe God wants you to experience foreclosure. Awesome, thanks, we appreciate that. The idea is that challenge, tension, adversity, pain, conflict, these are all necessary components that God uses effectively to work good in us. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Eve was God's solution for Adam. They will each play a role in each other's lives that God sees as good, in both purpose and pleasure. For both of them and for every person onward and to every single married person in this room. The committed, exclusive relationship between one man and one woman, as God has designed it, what we call marriage, is good. It's a good thing. Now, while all marriages are good, not all are good marriages. So why? If you ask anyone what makes for a good marriage, you'll get all kinds of answers as to what the most important thing is. You love, friendship, Strong family history, good planning, shared faith, shared values, common interests, physical chemistry, emotional compatibility. The list goes on and on and on of what people will say will make a good marriage. And while all of these things are helpful or even critical components to a thriving marriage, there is an answer that stands behind all the others and makes them all work together in the best possible way. It may not sound like too earth shattering at first, but I assure you, this can rock your world. Here it is. We believe what we believe about God determines the quality of our marriage. Let me explain. Everybody's view, everybody views life from different perspectives. I mean, we have a thing that's called, we call it a worldview. Every worldview is shaped by many things. Our, our culture, our gender, our upbringing, our our present situation, the most profound thing that shapes anybody's worldview, though, is their understanding of God. My favorite quote, A.W. Tozer's, I'm sure many of you know it. What comes to our, into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about you. What a person believes about God determines what he or she thinks about how we got here, our ultimate meaning, our place in the world, our relationship with one another, what happens after we die. So essentially, our worldview, our perspective on life, it is determined by our perspective on God. And when we talk about theology, all we're talking about is what we think about God. In other words, theologians aren't just really smart old guys in seminaries or just smart dead guys in cemeteries. 
Now, every one of you in this room is a theologian. What kind of theologian are you? R.C. Sproul says, the issue for Christians is not whether we are going to be theologians, but whether we are going to be good theologians or bad theologians. Whether we realize it or not, our ideas about life, needs, marriages, marriage, romance, conflict, and everything else reveals themselves all the time in our words and deeds, inevitably reflecting our view of God. If you listen closely, theology spills into our everyday language, and we can just simply take a conversation, a typical conversation in a married household, and we can hear the theology really frustrates me when you do that. Yeah, well, whatever. That's just the way I am. It's not my fault that it pushes all the wrong buttons in you. What do you... I don't really care. You don't really care what I need. All you care about is what you need. What do you mean what you need? What about my needs? My feelings don't seem to matter at all in this marriage. Why can't you trust me? All those sentences all emanate from a theology. While this exchange plays out in marriages everywhere, such simple statements come from the hearts that have adopted certain assumptions about who we are, what we need, what's really important, and how God figures into it all. So make no mistake about it. How a husband and a wife build their marriage day by day and year by year is fundamentally shaped by their theology. It governs how you think, what you say, and how you act. Remember, Tozer, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That means it will be the most important thing in your marriage. When you consider the tumultuous history of God's relationship with Israel and contrast it with American Christianity, who aside from the Civil War, which almost destroyed this country, we really have enjoyed really unfettered grace from God in this nation. Yet, we've actually kind of created a self-inflicted persecution. We've had it so good. I mean, we read of the martyrs of the past or the suffering of believers in other countries, and we feel guilty. So we cry persecution when Starbucks holiday cups just aren't Christmassy enough. We also see favorable circumstances. I mean, every financial success, some, every avoidance of pain or struggle as somehow a sign of God's blessing and good favor. The careless misappropriation of scriptures like Jeremiah 29.11, you know, I know the plans I have for you, they are wonderful and all, everything's supposed to be good. And Philippians 4.13, I can all do all things through Christ who strengthens me. They use these verses like incantations. Like somehow it's going to help them escape their present circumstance. If you simply see God as a means to personal happiness, meaning, or purpose, you'll likely view your marriage the same way. That's not good theology. And it will burden your marriage. God's desire for you is not your happiness. God's desire for you is your holiness. Romans 8.28 says, And we know 
that to them that love God, all things work together for good, even to them that are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also foreordained to be conformed into the image of his Son. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And 1 Peter 1 lays it out clearly, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as you, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If holiness is what God desires in you most, would that change your view of marriage? Do you think it's possible, perhaps even likely, that God's primary purpose for marriage was to use it as a means to purge your sinful, self-serving flesh and press it toward selfless devotion to another? Wouldn't that bear some resemblance to Christ? After all, that's who we are being fashioned after. In this case, God is glorified in your marriage. That's good theology. That should at least cause you to take a second look at the purpose of marriage and maybe even your marriage or your role as a spouse. I just want you to understand a very important idea. Marriage is bigger than you. Marriage is the foundation which God uses to produce, to produce human beings that he will prepare to spend eternity with him. Marriage is the foundation which God uses to produce human beings that he will prepare to spend eternity with him. We've all seen it. Young couples running headlong into romance, disregarding the wisdom of those closest around them, trying to use marriage as a way to legitimize their uncontrolled passions. They didn't see marriage as first being about God. Or the Christian married couples conflating their biblical roles and marital responsibilities in favor of, well, this just works, it works better. Even if that means settling far less than what they could have had, they did not see marriage as first being about God. And most tragic of all, Christian families torn apart by divorce when one or both spouses simply decides that the personal need is more important than what God has joined together. They did not see marriage as being about God first. I don't know the deep issues in any given marriage. And every marriage has them. Remember, we're just sinners married to other sinners. But I'm never surprised that couples I know that have a durable, thriving marriage also seem to have a healthy biblical understanding of God and his place in their individual lives. I heard someone say, marriage rarely, no wait, marriage never works out the way you planned. And this was on a radio show, and I had to play the podcast back because I wanted to get it word perfect. I think it was brilliant, and he just spewed this out like, like in C.S. Lewis style. Being intimately related to another fallen human being makes, 
make demands on our lives that none of us could properly expect before we get married. Being intimately related to another fallen human being makes demands on our lives that none of us could properly expect before we get married. And every married person in this room knows exactly what I mean. Life makes demands on us. As Christians, we have a God that makes demands on us. As children, we have children that make demands on us. Our jobs, our friends, our family, they all make demands on us. For too many of us, we use marriage as a means of getting what we demand for a change. We want some balance. We want some payback for all of our sacrifice. That's what we too often burden our spouse with. Meet my needs. I'm tired of meeting everyone else's needs. It's my turn. You promised in your vows, your undying love, sacrifice, and devotion. Now pay up. It's time someone serves me. Like the commercial says, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. I want to pull an illustration from a powerful little book entitled When Sinners Say I Do by Dave Harvey. Some of you have gone through it, and I think some of you I went through it with a class a couple years ago. It's a very poignant book and very, very readable and down-to-earth and practical. He starts, Paul, Tim, Paul wrote to Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of who I am foremost. He's saying, this saying that he has actually is two parts. Christ Jesus came in this world to save sinners. This catapults us right to the heart of the gospel and prepares us for part two, of whom I am foremost. Now, what are we supposed to do with that? I mean, how can the apostle of the Gen to the Gentiles, the original theologian of the Christian faith, we know what Paul was like. How can he honestly say this? To whom was he comparing himself and what standard is he applying? I mean, he is in effect saying, look, I know my sin. And what I've seen in my own heart is darker and more awful. It's more proud, more selfish and self-exalting. It is more consistently and regularly in rebellion against God than anything I have glimpsed in the heart of anyone else. As far as I can see, the biggest sinner I know is me. But let's look at the very next verse. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. With each passing day, with all of us, we can, we can all attest to this. Two things grew larger for Paul. His sinfulness in light of God's holiness and God's mercy in the face of his sin. Knowing both God and himself accurately deepened his gratitude for the vastness of God's mercy in redeeming him and the patience of Christ in continuing in to love and identify with him in his daily struggle with sin. As two people in marriage embrace this view of reality and live in accordance with it, their lives and marriage begin to look more and more like the picture God wants us to display the rest of the world. He talks of a couple, Rob and Sally. They've been Christians for a long time, like many couples. They've, had, they've adopted certain assumptions about how the other should behave. 
and they feel that they should have certain needs that they think should be met. And although they attend church and live conscientious Christian lives, Rob and Sally are experiencing serious marital conflict. What they don't see is that their fights are grounded in the wrong views of reality, so meaningful solutions seem to escape them. Here's just a couple. Rob says he needs respect. But all he seems to get are Sally's critical comments each evening when he comes home from work. Sally says she needs Rob to reach out to her and provide a greater sense of security in their marriage. But all she seems to get is Rob's passivity day after day. There's really nothing wrong with these particular desires. The problems emerge when several times a week they rehearse each other's failures and they reiterate their demands for change and repeat with slight variations the kind of hurtful remarks they've often been tossing back and forth for months. As a friend witnessing this gradual erosion of Rob and Sally's marriage, what would you say to try and help them? I mean, yeah, they need a listening ear, but their greatest need is in their theology. They must recognize that some of the expectations they hold for one another and the underlying perspectives from which those expectations emerge are unbiblical. Certainly, their accusations, harsh words, and selflessly demanding attitudes are riddled with sin. We know that. As a couple, they need to help aligning themselves with Scripture, with God's view of reality. But Rob and Sally, root problem is revealed in the fact that Paul is saying, This is a trustworthy saying, but it's not trustworthy to them yet. The sincere recognition of honest ownership of their own individual sinfulness does not have full acceptance. Like many married believers, Rob and Sally have melted down Paul's trustworthy saying and kind of recast it into the unbiblical mold of Christ Jesus came into this world to meet my needs of which I have the most. In short, Rob and Sally lack understanding of how the gospel really works, and they're far from alone. John MacArthur writes, Christians are rapidly losing sight of sin as the root of all human woes, and many Christians are explicitly denying that their own sin can be the cause of their personal anguish. More and more are attempting to explain the human dilemma in wholly unbiblical terms, like like temperament or addictions or dysfunctional families, the child within, codependency, excuse me, and a host of other irresponsible escape mechanisms promoted by secular psychology. The potential impact of such a drift is frightening. Remove the reality of sin and you take away the possibility of repentance. Abolish the doctrine of human depravity and you void the divine plan of salvation. And if you erase the notion of personal guilt, you eliminate the need for a savior. The cross makes a stunning statement about husbands and wives. We're sinners and our only hope is grace. Without a clear awareness of sin, we will evaluate our conflicts outside the biblical story. The finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, thus eliminating any basis for true understanding true reconciliation, true change. Without the gospel of our crucified and risen Savior, our marriages slide toward the superficial. We begin to make limp justifications for our sinful behavior and our marriage conflicts and, at best, an uneasy partial negotiated settlements. 
But once I find Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16 trustworthy, and I can embrace it with full acceptance, once I know that indeed that I am the worst of the sinners, then my spouse is no longer my biggest problem. I am. And when I find myself walking in the shoes of the worst of sinners, I will make every effort to grant my spouse the same lavish grace that God has granted me. One of the biggest things you can do for your marriage is understand how forgiveness and grace works. The truth hit me in the face a few years ago. This is the real reason why Eric asked me to talk today. I just wanted to set up the theology. After some 20 years of raising four kids together, my wife and I moved into a little rental in Temecula that she had already planned to be the last house we would live in together. I didn't even question why, after 20 years of her always handling it, she asked me to put all the utilities in my name. See, our marriage wants the model to many around us. Loving and strong, involved in both church and the community, and it had lost its way. While we kept it up for appearances, it was lifeless, it was loveless, and it was heading fast toward hopeless. The housing crash added additional weight loss, or excuse me, additional weight, as as we were uh, directly impacted by the loss of both our jobs and consequently our home. By the way, that makes my friend now a prophet. This is not a unique story, though. Now, because Barb was always very active in the nonprofit community, in 2011, Barb was nominated for Citizen of the Year in Temecula. As word got out about it, I would hear people who know her and know her well and say things like, well, she deserves it. Barb has the biggest heart. Barb is always there to help. She's amazing. She's awesome. I used to joke around saying that, you know, when we go to all these functions and everything, I would just introduce myself as Mr. Barb. Everyone loved Barb. How come I didn't? I used to. I was crazy about her. I called my sister the day after I met Barb, and I said, I just met my wife. She was beautiful. She was feminine. She was caring. She was an old-fashioned girl with old-fashioned values, and I had just come out of a very contentious seven-year marriage, and I found that refreshing and absolutely irresistible. I started to ask myself, what is it that they see in her that they want to honor her as citizen of the year? I mean, this is not an award you get for achievement. This is an award you get for who you are. That's crazy. Who cares if she won? She was nominated. That's huge. So I started to recount all the things that I found attractive in her in the beginning. It wasn't long before I realized I was listing the same things that people were saying about her today. That's when it dawned on me. Barb hadn't changed. She was still the same one I fell in love with. So why wasn't I seeing that anymore? 
The answer is so simple, I'm embarrassed about it. I stopped looking. After 20 years with someone, you end up knowing that person extremely well. Every quirk, every flaw, every sin, it all comes part of, becomes part of your marriage whether you like it or not. There's no escape, there's no solution, and there's nothing you can do about it. Or is there? You see, I had decided to filter what I saw in my wife through the worst possible lens. Barb's nurturing. I saw that as mothering. She's optimistic. I saw that as naive. She's organized. I saw that as anal and OCD. She's loyal. I saw that as weak. She's careful. I saw that as paranoia. She's respectful. I saw that as formal and stuffy. I mean, look at this list. Nurturing, optimistic, organized, loyal, careful, respectful. I turned all those things that are good, even virtues, and I turned them into flaws about her. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not like Barb didn't have issues that were legitimate struggles for her. The biggest was being her weight. After our first child, she remained significantly overweight, and I had decided to make that my focus. And eventually, that's all I saw. And it showed. It showed my attitude. It showed my sarcasm. It showed my constant exploitation of her patience. I didn't tell her that it was the issue, but it manifested itself in all those other areas. The more I focused on that, the less I saw anything else. And she had had enough. We aren't one to read each other's emails and stuff. I was, happened to be scrolling through looking for some documentation for something, and I stumbled on an email exchange between Barb and our oldest daughter. It detailed Barb's plans to leave me and start a new life. So I thought of that scenario. And I'll be honest with you, my concern wasn't being alone. It was, what is this going to do to our family? Our kids, our parents, our friends. What will it say to those who often look to us for guidance? All the couples that we counseled. What's it going to say to the church, another marriage that God couldn't fix? All of this came tumbling down on me, and I remember saying to myself, our marriage is too important to too many people to let it fail. Our marriage is bigger than us. So I set out to save it. I made one of those deals with God that we often make, except most of us do it backwards. It's usually something like, God, if you do this one thing, I promise that I will do this. Remember, good theology is important. Let me show you what this prayer sounds like when it's grounded in good theology. This is to my best of my recollection, but I'm not kidding you, this was my prayer. God, you have given me everything I need for life. 
And you have given me more than I deserve. You have also empowered me with the ability to walk in your truth, yet I have failed in keeping you in the center. This has caused me to stray from the man you have called me to be, the husband my wife needs me to be. Forgive me. Cause my heart to be rekindled with a passion for you. Help me to see her with your eyes, the eyes of grace. Help me be the man that Barb can fall in love with again. And for this, I ask, see, my request is after I've made my, (laughs) my request, Lord, is that you rekindle her heart toward me. I can't do that. I can do what you've called me to do. That's my part in this. But her heart, that's your work. You've got to do that. This will be my assurance that you have rescued us. And then Paul's words in Philippians came pouring out, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the peace of God will be with you. So I applied these words to my marriage. I focused on the things in Barb that were true, that were honorable, that were lovely, all the things worthy of praise. Fortunately, I had a list. February of 1996, I made a list of all the reasons I love Barb. And I gave this to her. We've been married six, seven years. So I went back to this list. And I just read it. And I did something else. You know how you can take the clutter on your computer, all the files that are dead or whatever, and you just kind of gather them all, and you kind of cull your files and delete the stuff that's just of no value anymore. That's what I did. I took all the stuff that, that I know that's there about Barb. I just took those and says, I'm just not going to focus on those anymore because I've got enough here. I've got enough here that I can do what Scripture has told me to do, which is to focus on the things that are praiseworthy and honorable. like that. Because you know something? we all will find the other negative side in anybody we're with. No matter who you were, you're married or you leave and you find somebody else, it's just a new set of stuff that's negative. That's your responsibility is to be able to just take that file, put it in the trash and delete it. That's what I did. I just hit delete. Now, they didn't go away, but I just didn't bother to bring them up and focus on those things anymore. I was too busy about this because that's my, that's my responsibility. A few months later, one morning while shaving, Barb was laying in bed, and she goes, Bub, that's what she calls me, Bub, do you think it's possible that God could cause you to fall in love again with the same person? And 
I said, baby, I'm banking on it. And she did. I courted my wife again. I even told the guy who cuts my hair, how girly is that? I was talking <laughs> to my hairdresser about my marital issues. He used to cut my lawn. We've known the family for years. Now he cuts my hair. It's a little tiny mower. You know. I told him, I said, Kevin, I'm going to court my wife again. He goes, that's so awesome. So when I get my hair cut, how's it going? He, and you know, he really is the only one I told that to. And I don't know why. It just seemed right. That's his job. So we got fixed. And that house that she was supposed to leave me in, we found an opportunity to buy a new house together. And the very first thing that Barb bought for our house was this. And it's not. It wasn't too late. Because our marriage was bigger than us. We had to fight for it because there were too many other people that depend on us to be there for them. My kids, now that they're married, need us just as much as when they were five and six because they go through problems and they go, Dad, Mom, how do we do this? We've got to be there for them. That's not maybe the message on marriage everybody likes to hear because it puts you completely responsible for your role in it, not hers or his. It's yours. I could have actually just did this whole message in one simple sentence. Show your spouse some grace, because you're no picnic either. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you did give us a good thing in marriage because in it and through it, you press us and you challenge us to be something more like Christ in our self, selfless actions, in our, in our devotion to one other human being, to place ourselves and esteem others greater. Those are all aspects that truly get get put into practice and put in and pressed into service in a marriage where you are daily and daily in and out of a relationship with one other human being. It was not meant to be just for our happiness and our pleasure. Marriage is for our good. It's a good thing. And we want to establish marriage as a thing that best exemplifies the relationship of Christ and his church. That though we stray, though we sin, though we continually fall short, Christ is there betrothed to us to keep us forever. We thank you, God. We thank God for this in Christ's name. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.